take a minute now and dismiss our children to go upstairs to be part of our kids' crew worship this morning. So kids who are sixth grade and under can make their way to the front, and our leaders will join them. The rest of us are going to turn to Revelation chapter 2 this morning as we continue the sermon series that we're in right now that's called Seven Letters to Seven Churches, a study through these letters written to churches in the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. So our kids are going to make their way down. They're going to head upstairs. Parents, if you're visiting with us today, maybe you're here with dad today and you're wondering, uh, where are my kids going? How do I get them back? When we're done with our service today, they will be waiting just beyond the balcony level on uh, this east side. There is a a large room up there. We call it our kids' crew room, and that's where they go for kids' crew worship on Sunday mornings, and you'll be able to reclaim them there. And uh, if you don't reclaim them there, then we will hunt you down because it wouldn't be Father's Day without them, right? So uh, uh, you'll be able to find them up there after the service this morning. All right, Revelation chapter 2. I'm not going to say a lot uh, to kind of intro where we are. I'm just going to jump into it because there's a lot of background that we want to cover related to this letter. And and of course, kind of in the context of how it fits, it'll just kind of, it'll come out as we start to work our way through the text this morning. So we're in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8, reading the letter that is written here to the church in Smyrna. And so it says in verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, and, and we've talked about how the angel of the church, each of these seven letters is addressed to the angel of the church in whatever city. So it, these, these letters are written to believers in these cities, and the angel, that same word that is translated to mean angel, is also translated from the Greek to be messenger, and so these are the uh, word written to the messenger, the leadership, the elders, some believe even just the pastors of these churches in these different cities, but regardless of whether we single out just a select few leaders of the church that, that these letters are written to, it's obvious that the intent is that these letters would be shared with not only the believers in the churches to these cities, which they're addressed, but also that they would be circulated and they would speak to all believers everywhere through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so this letter is written to the church in the city of Smyrna. We'll talk more about Smyrna in a minute. But he writes this to them. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. The first and last, of course, is a reference to Christ. He was the Alpha and the Omega. Those are the first and last letters of the Greek uh, alphabet. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Scripture refers to him as the firstborn over creation. He's also going to be the victorious conqueror when he comes again, his second coming. And so he's the first and the last. And even the, the, the language here is is connected to the vision that God gave to John in Revelation chapter 1. So if you look at verse 17 of chapter 1, you see that he says, fear not, I'm the first and the last. And so there's a connection there. In fact, with each of these letters, there is some part of the address, some phrase, some words taken from the address that are connected to the vision that is unfolded in Revelation chapter 1. And so here, of course, it's this connection of the first and the last. Jesus is speaking these words to the church in Smyrna. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, 
let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And so the Lord is speaking this letter through John, which is his, his instrument here, essentially, who is, who is telling this, this vision, unfolding this vision. And a part of this vision that is captured in the book of Revelation are these letters to these seven churches. And as he writes to the church in Smyrna, he's writing to them about the tribulation, the persecution that is coming. And he's telling them to stand strong, to be bold, to remain faithful in the midst of the persecutions, not that... Not persecutions that might come, but persecutions that are coming. And so he's saying to them, remain faithful. If we're going to understand these persecutions, if we're going to understand even this church better, we need to understand the, who these people are. Where, what, what is it that we know about this city of Smyrna? And what is it that we know to be true about the church and the believers who were established there in the city of Smyrna. The ancient city of Smyrna is actually the modern day city of Izmir, Turkey. And we have a map that we can show you. And this map shows the location of these seven cities relative to both the Isle of Patmos, which is where John was as he's writing this. And if you if you know your, your world geography, you know that this actually is there on the western coast of modern-day Turkey along the eastern part of the Aegean Sea. Just across the Aegean Sea would be the nation, the modern-day nation of Greece, of course, the ancient nation of Greece as well. And here on this, this section of land that was both in those days known as Asia, this is the province of Asia, and of course, today we think of it as the Middle East or even really the gateway to the rest of Asia as, as the whole, we find these cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And so Smyrna is the second letter written to the second city along this postal route. And so there was a common postal route in these days that was followed. And according to this postal route, there's sort of a circular, you can kind of, I mean, it's not a perfect circle, but you can see kind of the circular nature of this, this way, this postal route that connected these different cities, and Smyrna is both the second city along this postal route and the second church addressed by these seven letters to these churches. The city of Smyrna itself was, was an ancient city from antiquity. About as far back as we have history, we have some form of history of a city in this location, but the city in the day of Jesus, the city in the time of the New Testament, was, was established by uh, the generals of Alexander the Great in the 3rd century B.C., 3rd and 4th century B.C., after the, the more ancient city had been laid ruins by previous wars and fighting that had taken place. And so the, the generals of Alexander the Great, after his death, decided to rebuild Smyrna because it has a key location. See, Smyrna has an excellent port. You can see that it's located there. Uh, along the coast, and unlike Ephesus, that Ephesus was a key port city as well, but Ephesus had a really poor harbor and a really poor port that was constantly filling up with silt and with sand, so much so that today, the, the ancient city of Ephesus, those ruins are about six miles from the coast. That's how much it's built up and filled in that harbor over time. Well, Izmir today, modern day Izmir, or in these days Smyrna, 
was an excellent port, continues to this day to be an excellent port. So it was a key center for trade. In fact, there was a trade route that ended in Smyrna that opened the door all the way to the Orient. So you could begin in Smyrna and you could travel eastward through the modern-day countries of Iraq and Iran all the way to the Orient, all the way as far east as you know, the, the modern nations of Pakistan, northern India, places that were the, a bridge of sorts to the Orient. So it was located in a, in a key location with a great harbor. In the time of the New Testament, the city of Smyrna was probably a city of about 200,000 that was known for its beauty. Because it had been intentionally rebuilt by these generals of Alexander the Great, they built it as a model city. And so its buildings were, were well adorned. They were, they were a, a really in many ways, uh, model architecture of the day. It was a beautiful city. It was a place of a lot of wealth. In fact, as you would enter the city of Smyrna from the harbor, from the port, there located on what's known as Mount Pegasus was a, a, a key area of worship. And so along this mountain, Mount Pegasus, about rising some 500 feet or so above the harbor, there was a, a, what was called the Golden Street. There was this street known as the Golden Street, and on either ends of this Golden Street located along this mountain were temples to Greek gods. One was a temple to Zeus, one was a temple to Sibeli, and so then along the way, along this Golden Street, were these other temples. And then at the top of this mountain was a large Acropolis, which was uh, sort of like what you maybe envision in your mind when you think of Greek architecture. You, you envision some kind of a large structure with the giant columns and the large covering and this, you know, this massive place where people would gather. And that, that Acropolis was known as the crown of Mount Pegasus. And so these temples that were located along this golden road were described as being like the necklace adorning the neck of a Greek goddess, and then the Acropolis that was located, the temple located at the top of this mountain was known as the crown of this great mountain. And so it was a beautiful model city that, in in fact, archaeologists have uncovered coins, ancient coins from Smyrna that are written with this inscription that says, first in Asia and the rest of the world. And so this, this was a city that was, uh, it was preeminent in its beauty. It was a large city, a strategic city that served many key purposes in the Roman, uh, the Roman Empire. But one of its most important distinctions is that the city of Smyrna was very loyal to Rome. The the city of Smyrna became the location of a temple to the emperor Tiberius. In fact, Tiberius was emperor during the time of Jesus. And in AD 26, the city of Smyrna was chosen as the location for a temple built to honor uh, Tiberius, who was, you know, the, the, the Roman emperor. And this was a part of this rising imperial cult where the emperors, the Caesars, as they later became known, were, were worshipped by the people of Rome, and, and even to the point where by the time that John is writing these letters to these churches and the emperor Domitian is ruling, the Smyrnans gladly offered their worship 
to the emperor Domitian, and it's, it's recorded in history, while others around them struggled. And so they became sort of this, this favored city by the Roman imperial uh, government. And so the Smyrnans were well-connected with Rome. They were a favored city. And because of that, because of their favorable status with Rome, anyone inside of the city of Smyrna who would not follow this imperial religion, who would not honor the emperor Caesar as Lord, who would not pay tribute to Caesar as Lord, would be persecuted. So you can see, obviously, why the church in Smyrna faced this oncoming onslaught of persecution at the hands of the government, because this was known as a model city, really as an example city for others to follow in their worship of the emperor, and the Christians who didn't were, were ultimately martyred for their faith. In fact, in the mid-second century, Polycarp, the bishop Polycarp, who was a direct disciple of the apostle John, Polycarp was martyred publicly, burned alive, because he would not bow down and and worship Caesar as Lord. And so when he would not publicly recant his Christian faith, he was seized, he was taken to the theater there in Smyrna, they gathered wood and burned him publicly. This is the kind of persecution that John says to the church is coming for them. And it was persecution like this and, and others that led the church father and historian Tertullian to write later that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. And so out of this persecution, the church grew. The church really thrived in the midst of these intense persecutions. And so it's into this situation, to this church, that is facing these increasing persecutions that Jesus speaks this word, that they would remain strong. So as we have done in our study of previous letters, as we'll continue to do as we study these letters, there's a a familiar pattern about these letters that we follow as we open up and try to understand these letters, and then application that we want to make for our lives today, ways that it continues to speak to us. And so I want to follow this same pattern. So on the back of your worship guide, there's a place where you can follow along and take some notes this morning, and and we're going to use this same fourfold pattern that we've used with the letter to Ephesus and we'll use with the other letters of the commendation, the condemnation, the command, and the call that are given to these churches. So first we see this, that the believers of the church in Smyrna may have been poor materially, but they were rich spiritually. So he writes to them, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but then he says, but you are rich. And he says, I also know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. In spite of their their poverty, in spite of the fact that they were materially poor, Jesus says, you are rich. Many of the believers in Smyrna would have been slaves. And what could happen in the day and time of the, the New Testament writings, and particularly as we find that this is the the latter part of the first century that John is writing this. What would happen is that someone who is not a free Roman citizen could indenture themselves to a Roman citizen. They could become, intentionally choose to become a servant, a slave 
of a Roman citizen. They could serve for a period of time, and through their service, they could gain their status as a free man. And so oftentimes, this would happen. People would indenture themselves to free Roman citizens so that they might earn their freedom. And history tells us, tradition tells us, that many of these early believers in the church in Smyrna were indentured slaves who had come to Christ as the gospel had broken out as revival had taken place among those slaves, those servants who were oppressed in many ways, who were under the hand of their, of their Roman masters, and yet revival was, was happening. And even here, we, we see the connection. Though they might be poor materially, they were rich spiritually. So he commends them for their, their richness. He commends them that they didn't, they didn't Think of their poverty as something that had to be overcome. Rather, they just were faithful and devoted to the Lord. And because they were devoted to Him, in spite of the fact that they were poor materially, He says that you, you are rich you are spiritually in things that matter. They, they were wealthy. Not only that, as we kind of move on from the commendation, we see the next part of this pattern is a condemnation. You'll notice that there's not even a condemnation in your notes because this letter, actually, that is written to this church is one of two of these seven letters that don't offer some kind of a standing rebuke, some kind of a, of a condemnation of the church. Now, there's a strong word here for them to follow. There's a strong word about how they're to live and what they're to do, but he's not condemning them for some kind of sin in their midst. And again, that speaks to the faithfulness and the spiritual the spiritual richness, if, if I can say it that way, of this church, of these believers of the church in Smyrna. But he gives them this command. They were instructed to live without fear, even though their suffering was certain. The tone of what, what is being written to them is not if you suffer, but rather when you suffer. Because sufferings are coming. In fact, he says to them directly, right? Do not fear what you are about to suffer. This is coming. Behold, he writes, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. And so the, the sufferings were certain. The, the period of 10 days here is uncertain. A lot of scholars have written about what does this mean? Was, was it actually a period of 10 days? Was this period of 10 days, was it symbolic of something else? Was, it, was he speaking about uh, you know, some, some other period of time was 10, maybe a connection to some longer period of time. And the truth is we can't know exactly. We, we don't know exactly what is meant. It could literally mean that there were going to be 10 days of tribulation that were coming. In fact, uh, really, that may be, if we're, if we're going to choose some interpretation, that may be the best interpretation that we would stand by because it's the most literal and the, and the only one that we can really be certain of is that he says there are going to be 10 days of persecution. And so that literally we could take it to mean 10 days. I think that probably he's speaking both of maybe 10 literal days of persecution, but also in a general sense, he's just speaking about the fact that there are persecutions that are coming and they're going to last for an, a definite period of time. There will be a beginning and, and later an end to the persecutions that were coming according to a period of time that the Lord allows. And though we don't know whether that was 10 literal days or 10 years or 100 years or longer as some have theorized, we know that, that 
10 is a definite number, right? So it speaks to the fact of both a definite beginning and a definite end to this period of persecution. And also, we know that these persecutions, these trials and tribulations are coming at the hand of the devil. That although they may be delivered at the hands of other men, really, they're just being used as an instrument of the enemy who is trying to bring this onslaught against the church. These attacks were the attacks of, of Satan, attacks of the enemy. You know, along the way, we try to draw a connection between what's happening with these churches in Asia and, and the situation that they're in and what's happening today in the church today because there are many parallels. There are a lot of ways that we can relate. The reality is one of the ways that we can relate to the church in Smyrna as the, the church, as the body of Christ in America today, is that increasingly we find that we are facing opposition for our Christian faith. Now, I, I always hesitate to use the word persecution, and I say that every time we talk about some form of persecution here in America. Now, there, let's, be, let's be sure that there are real persecutions that are happening around the world today. In fact, uh, you, you can do your research. You can find lots of different reports, lots of different studies from different Christian organizations that speak to the overwhelming amount of persecutions happening around our globe today where Christians are being, are being sought for their Christian faith that they might be that they might be persecuted in some form, and whether that's financial, whether that's physical, or even at the point of losing their lives, we find that Christians today in nations like Egypt, in, in places like Iraq and Iran, and really throughout the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, places like Indonesia, India, uh, South American countries like Colombia, places in Africa like Nigeria, that Christians in, are are broadly persecuted throughout the, the world today. And so I hesitate to, fa- to call what we face in America persecution, right? The fact that someone may say something ugly about us because of our faith, uh, that's opposition for sure, but our lives aren't on the line yet. And maybe it will come to that. I, I pray that it doesn't. I pray that we would experience revival in our country. And in fact, I believe that we as the body of Christ are called to seek revival and seek that, that there would be brokenness and repentance of sin. And we have to stand for what is right and stand for God's truth. But all of the signs seem to be pointing right now toward a period of persecution, if you will, a period of opposition, I maybe would say, that we are going to face as the body of Christ. And regardless of what form that might take for us, whether it would affect your business whether it would affect your reputation, whether it would affect something like you know, our tax status as a nonprofit organization, whether it would uh, affect uh, us as individuals and in the free exercise of our faith. In whatever form this opposition may take, increasingly we see that the handwriting is on the wall, that we are facing opposition for our Christian faith. And, and so all it takes is just pick something from the headlines, right? Pick, pick something from just this week, like the, the attacks that happened in the city of Charleston, South Carolina, where a group of believers were gathered together to pray and to seek the unity of the, the city, seek the unity of the, of the church, and they were singled out and targeted in that Christian church as both because of their race, but also because of their faith, singled out as they were gathered together. Take things that are happening with 
courts, uh, court cases and, and the trial that's even being considered before our Supreme Court now with, uh, with the legalization of same-sex marriage that's, that's being looked at by the Supreme Court or other laws that are being, that are being presented and then challenged and overthrown. There are any number of headlines that we could, that we could cherry-pick today that point to this opposition that we're facing in our world today because of our Christian faith. Just as John writes through the inspiration of the Spirit here, these words of Christ to the church in Smyrna, that they should stand firm, that they should remain faithful. His word to us today would be the same. If somehow Jesus were writing a letter to the church in Chickasha, he would say this to us, church, stand true in the midst of the opposition that you face. Stand true when others would speak evil of you, when they would revile you, when they would cast you out because of your faith. Stand your ground, Jesus would say to us. Sadly, we often get afraid of things that don't even happen. We, we, just, we get scared because of the threat of what might happen, right? The possibility of suffering even causes us to to, to pull back and to not stand the way that we should. And yet, this word is a clear word that we should stand our ground, that we should remain faithful. And in fact, the, the call that, that you find in your notes is that Jesus calls the Smyrnans, Jesus calls for, rather, the Smyrnans to overcome their tribulation by remaining faithful, even if it costs their lives. They are to remain faithful in the midst of the persecution, the opposition that they were facing. So let's look this morning at some application that we can draw for our lives. Ways that this scripture continues to speak to us. We've seen clearly what is being spoken to the church at Smyrna, but how does this continue to speak to us today as believers of the church today? The first application in your notes is this: that there's more to spiritual wealth than having material things, right? There are more ways to be rich than counting what's in your bank account, in other words. Similarly, though, we could say that there's more to spiritual bankruptcy than just not having enough to pay the bills either. And sadly, many churches become spiritually poor long before they become financially poor. When the focus of a church shifts from the things that matter, when we lose our first love, like we saw was written to the church in Ephesus, when, when the main thing of our church is no longer the spread of the gospel and the advance of Christ's kingdom here on earth, when we lose sight of what matters the most, then we, we become spiritually poor. When we refuse to stand in the face of opposition because we're worried of what some may say of us, then we demonstrate a form of spiritual bankruptcy in, in a way. And so the truth is that money will not save you from suffering. In fact, one of the real fallacies of the, the prosperity gospel that's often preached today, the idea that Jesus wants to make you healthy and wealthy, right? One of the great problems with the prosperity gospel is the fact that Money will not solve your problems. It won't keep you from trials. In fact, oftentimes, money itself can lead to more problems. And so, you know, there was a, a song in my day that's just going to uh, date me just slightly here as a child of, you know, the 90s. But there was a song that talked about more, more money, more problems, right? That there was the idea that 
there was the idea that the more you have, the more problems you have at times too. And the whole idea is this. Money can't save you from suffering. Money can't buy your way out of trial and tribulation. Money won't make you happy. Money won't solve your problems. Money won't keep you faithful in times of difficulty. So there's more to spiritual wealth than just having material things, and there's more to spiritual bankruptcy than having things as well, right? Secondly, we see this, that as believers, we should expect to suffer for the sake of Christ. And when we, when we do, we must remain faithful. We should expect sufferings for the sake of Christ. Jesus himself told his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. In John chapter 16 verse 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The rest of the New Testament talks about our sufferings as well. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29 says, for it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Romans chapter 5 verse 3 says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 13 says, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. We are called to suffer. We ought to expect sufferings for the sake of Christ. If we weren't so scared of suffering, we might find ourselves to be the powerful force that Jesus himself calls us to be. I served under a pastor in my early days in ministry. And every Sunday night, this was his thing that he would do on Sunday nights as we would have worship. Every Sunday night, he would end our service by saying this, church, I want to remind you of something. You are not uh, uh, you are not a, a little people. You are a mighty army, and you are called by the Spirit of God to invade every neighborhood, every subdivision, every corner of our city for Christ. And that, that rings in my mind so many times, the words of Mark Hartman, the pastor that I served under. We are called to be a mighty army. We are called to stand in the face of suffering and opposition Statistics today show that the church thrives under persecution. In fact, if you study across the globe today, if you were to study the places where the church is growing the fastest, the most, what you would find is that the church is growing the most in the same places where it is being persecuted the most today. And so the words of Tertullian still ring true today that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The church thrives under persecution. Why? Because in, in environments where we suffer for the sake of Christ, in environments where we suffer for our faith, the idea of being nominally Christian goes away. Either you are committed to your faith or you are not. There, there's no such thing as a casual Christian in an environment where people suffer for their faith. We are called as believers to stand our ground, to suffer when, when called upon for the name of Christ. And so we shouldn't think of sufferings as punishment. We shouldn't think of 
sufferings as uh, pain that somehow is being visited on us for our sin, that God somehow is dealing judgment on us because we suffer. Rather, as Peter writes in 1 Peter 4.13, we should rejoice insofar as we suffer for the sake of Christ. And finally, we see this point of application today, that not even the threat of death can scare someone who has nothing left to lose. When as believers, we become so committed to the cause of Christ, so sold out for our faith that we would remain faithful and true even to the point of death, as he calls the church in Smyrna to do, that they would stand and be faithful unto death. We find that nothing else can stop us. Why is it that the church thrives under persecutions, heavy persecutions? Because this reality is true, that when you're not scared to lose your life because you've given it away to Jesus, what else do they have against you, right? What else can they do for you? And so throughout Christian history, from the time of Jesus forward, we find that when people willingly lay down their lives for the cause of Christ, that the gospel will thrive. It will, it will, it will grow exponentially. And why is that? Because when people are fully committed to their Christian faith, I mean, when, to the point that they are willingly giving up everything, then the gospel really will, will go forth. Later in the book of Revelation, in the unfolding of this vision in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, that there is a, a verse that talks about believers, and it tells the, the story of their faithfulness in the midst of persecution. Listen to what is written in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. Speaking of Christians, it says that they have conquered him, talking about the enemy, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. The scariest thing in the world to our enemy is a Christian who doesn't love their life even to the point of death, that loves not their life, I should say it that way, even unto death, like Revelation 12, 11 says. If you want to be dangerous to our enemy, if you want Satan to shake when he sees you coming, then learn what this means, right? That you would be faithful unto death, that you would love not your life even to death, that it wouldn't matter what this world could do to you, what they could say about you, what they could take from you, because you've given everything to Jesus already. And there's nothing, no weapon, no, no defense, nothing in all of, of, of Christianity more dangerous than a believer who is sold out and committed to their faith, willing to give up even their life if necessary. So Jesus speaks this word to the Smyrnans. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who conquers, he says, will receive the reward. They will, they will not be hurt by the second death. They will, rather, they will, they will receive the crown of life, what he refers to as the crown of life. 
So how is it that we can receive this crown of life? How is it that we can uh, receive this reward? Well, we can remain faithful even in the face of suffering. Now, the, the truth is this, okay? Very few, if any of us in this room, will likely ever be called on to stand for our faith to the point of death. I mean, it's, it's conceivable, right? I mean, it's, we can imagine a scenario. We can think of a situation where that might happen. But the reality is probably none of us will ever be persecuted to the point of laying down our lives. But he doesn't say here that every one of you are going to be called to give your life. What he says is remain faithful even in the kind of suffering where you may be required to give your life. The point is that we would remain faithful regardless of what kind of opposition we face, regardless of what kind of sufferings we may face, that we would be willing to stand firm, that we would more than just stand firm, that we would remain faithful, committed, devoted is the idea here. So as we think about this lesson this morning, it's a challenge to us that we would understand that spiritual wealth doesn't come from having a lot of things. That real faithfulness, real honor of our Lord isn't just counted by, you know, your, your Sunday school attendance. It's not just counted by how much you tithe. It's, it's not counted by, you know, how many things you teach or how much knowledge you have. But rather, real spiritual maturity is marked by our obedience, not just our knowledge. In fact, if you were here this last Wednesday night, that was the very thing that I taught on in our midweek Bible study, that we tend to identify knowledge as the measure of the mark of Christian maturity when the New Testament speaks of obedience as the real mark of a mature Christian. So are you willing to remain faithful and obedient regardless of the cost? I want to ask if you would this morning that you would bow your head and you would close your eyes and as we prepare for a time of response in a moment, I want to ask you to do this because in this moment now, I want you to be able to look inward, right? Without worrying about what anybody else is thinking or what anybody else is considering or what's going on around you, that you would be able to look inward and ask yourself this question, would I remain faithful even if it cost me my life? Do I have the kind of faith that I would be committed, devoted to lay down everything for the cause of Christ. Jesus speaks this word to the church here. You will suffer for my sake, but when that happens, stand faithful. Remain true. This morning, if the measure of your maturity in Christ were your obedience, not just your knowledge, but your obedience, what would what would be said about your Christian faith? Just a moment, we're gonna have a time of response where our altars will be open, our staff will be here at the front, ready to pray with you if you'd like to come and, and pray with us. Even ready today to, to pray with you if you're ready to commit your life to Christ because you recognize that you don't have this kind of faith, that the, you've never really bought into this by surrendering your life. You've never become a genuine believer by fully devoting yourself to Christ, then today we would challenge you to come and speak with one of our staff. Or maybe you want to come and just pray here. You sense that God is calling you. You sense him leading you. Whatever it is that he's speaking to you now, can I challenge you that you would move in obedience to him and that you wouldn't just see your Christian maturity in terms of how much you know, but how much you do with what you know.
So as God calls us today, we want to step out by faith and follow him. Let's pray together. Lord, I ask that you would give us the kind of boldness. Lord, we understand that we're called to be led by your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, as you, as you call us, as you lead us, give us the faith that we would follow you, even into situations that seem frightening to us, even in situations where our faith is challenged. Lord, we want to be faithful to you. And so, Lord, give us that kind of faith and, and continue to be our lead and our guide. We want our lives to honor you as we willingly sacrifice anything and everything for your cause. And so, Lord, call us out now. Send us out. Use us for your kingdom and your glory, we pray in your name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing this song. And as we do that, God is leading you today. I challenge you that you would respond. Come forward. Pray here at our altar. Speak with one of our staff this morning. In whatever way God is leading you, I challenge you that you would respond in obedience to him this morning. Mm-hmm.